0: We'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Today, God speaks to us from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so today, as I mentioned, is the first day of Advent. Uh, and for some, I recognize that Advent is actually um, a fairly new concept. Uh, In essence, I'll give you a little context for Advent is part of the historic Christian church uh, calendar. It's celebrated the four Sundays before Christmas. Now, the term itself, Advent, means coming, and historically, the church has celebrated Advent by essentially looking back to when Christ came, uh, but also using this time to look ahead, longing for the coming of Christ once again. The season is uh, a season of longing for, yearning for, awaiting the return of Jesus. And so as a result, Advent uh, is more than just a simple association with the Christmas festivities, but rather Advent ought to be viewed as a profound and deep well marked by longing Though Advent can be a season of celebration, unless we first uh, understand that there's a desperate longing that we all possess, the celebration actually ends up being without much meaning. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, who's a theologian and author, she puts it this way. She says that Advent starts in the dark. The famous uh, theologian and activist, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it this way, that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. Now, why is that? Why is it that Advent starts in the dark? Why is it that the celebration of Advent is only possible for those with a troubled soul? Well, today we start a short series looking at Uh, those questions. A series that we're calling He Shall Be Called, which looks at the names of Jesus that are found in Isaiah 9, 6. Those names being Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Each week, we will look at the significance of that name. Now, before we jump into each of those names, I want to give you a little bit of context for what we're reading in Isaiah 9. Uh, The whole book of Isaiah is actually a fascinating book, Isaiah lived uh, and wrote this book about 700 plus years uh, before Jesus would come. Uh, It's in uh, this book where he warns the people of God in Israel of a coming judgment that is going to be against them. Um, And this judgment was coming as a result of their rebellion against God, and in particular, the failures and the corruptions of their wicked kings. And so as he's condemning these wicked kings and proclaiming the destruction of the kingdom, Isaiah then inserts what we see here in Isaiah 9, where he speaks now of a king who is to come, a king who is not corrupt, but righteous. He comes in the line of David, King David, coming to establish a king of justice and righteousness, as we see in verse 7, that he will be a king with a kingdom that will not be replaced or not be overthrown, and it will instead remove the broken, fallen, evil, unjust uh, kingdoms of this world, ushering in a new era. And now, he continues on, when, when will this king come? We didn't have it uh, printed there, but what's really interesting is in verse 1 of chapter 9, he begins the very, the very first word that you'll see in Isaiah 1 is this word, nevertheless. And I want to focus quickly on that, the importance of that word, nevertheless. See, leading up to chapter 9, there have been disheartening and painful prophecies that have come against the nation about this coming destruction, a destruction that was going to absolutely level their great kingdom. And so, because this has been a depressing book of the Bible up until verse 9, that nevertheless is actually really powerful because it's a reminder that though capture and exile are coming, that this will not be the end of their story. And what I find to be striking about that for us is that I know that many of us might feel as though our lives mirror the the uh, prophecies of Isaiah 1 through 8. It feels like life is in the midst of destruction and ruin, but when we set our eyes on a faithful God, there is always a nevertheless for us. There's always more to the story as we trust in him. But here's what happens as we continue on. In the very first portion of uh, the very first verse of uh, chapter 9, it says, Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now, I draw this out because he makes a very strange reference here to these places called Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, why are those significant? Well, if you fast forward 700 years and you go to Matthew 4... Matthew records the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he says in verse 13 of Matthew 4, he says, Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what had been said through the prophet Isaiah. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In case it wasn't obvious, Matthew has made it obvious that Jesus is the king prophesied 700 years before, and that the kingdom that is to come is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. And so, with all of that in mind, as we now look at the names that are given in Isaiah 9, it begins to give us a glimpse of who this king is, the character of this king, the character of the kingdom that he has come to institute and so let's look now at those names. That was all my sermon intro. Uh, now we're going to actually get started. I promise I planned accordingly uh, for the rest of this. But the first name that is given to this king, King Jesus, is the name Wonderful Counselor. What does it mean for Jesus to be Wonderful Counselor? Let's consider it this way. Let's consider what it means to be wonderful, what it means to be a counselor, and then finally, what it means for him to be your Wonderful Counselor. Okay? First, Wonderful Uh, Our concept of the word wonderful is actually a really limiting one. We don't have a great definition for that word. Uh, The word in our passage uh, is actually more akin to something being hard to understand. This is what the Hebrew word would have meant. In other words, it speaks to the character or the nature of something beyond our full comprehension. Now, for us modern people, we actually really struggle with that concept uh, we live in this information age where it seems like everything that we could possibly want to know is just always sitting in our pockets. Uh, and so we really struggle with this idea of not being able to fully understand things. Uh, it's actually very unique to the Western world. Uh, people in the West have a hard time struggling with this in particular because so often we assume, we have such a high view of ourselves that we assume that there's nothing that at some point we won't fully understand enough time will get there. But there are so many facets of our that we cannot fully conceptualize. Let me just give you a couple examples. One, consider, consider love. What is love? I mean, for some, love can be explained as a chemical reaction, that changes the biochemistry of our brain uh, such that we experience what we call love. And one of the reasons for that biochemistry change is that it leads us, as an example, to pair up with others so that we procreate. It's It's an evolutionary development for the furtherance of our genetic line. But is that all that love is? I mean, is love just a chemical reaction of no real value beyond the pragmatic consequences of something like children? I mean, what if the first time I said to my wife, I love you, instead I said to her, I'm currently having a chemical reaction in my brain that is causing me to have feelings that hopefully will lead to procreation and the furtherance of my genetic line. I mean, would that have wooed her? I don't think so. Because we know that love is something more. It's something more valuable. It's something more meaningful. And for the Christian... We trust what passages like First uh, uh, John 4 tells us, which says that God is love, and that this love, which is part of his character, is a sacrificial love, so that when we experience true love, we are in some sense experiencing the character of God. And when we show true love, we are in some way reflecting the character of God. And this, my friends, is beyond my ability to fully conceptualize or comprehend. Yet it is foundational to understanding what love is and why it's transcendent and meaningful. Or consider justice. What is justice? We talk a lot about justice, especially these days. Well, justice assumes that something transcendent, something is transcendent and kind of hard to understand. But something but justice assumes that there is some kind of right and wrong, good and evil. Out there that we should understand and justice then is fighting for what is right now for some our desire for justice is simply that we as a species have learned the best ways to interact with one another in order that society might flourish and of course in some ways that's true but when we see grave injustice we know that something evil is taking place It's something that just goes beyond that which keeps our society from flourishing. There's something fundamentally wrong. And for the Christian, we trust passages like Psalm 89 that tell us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, which means that when there is injustice, it's a rejection of God's rule and reign over creation, that justice— then is when we align ourselves with God's rule over all things. And this, my friends, is beyond my ability to fully conceptualize. And yet it's foundational to understanding what justice is and why it's transcendent and meaningful. And I say all of this to say because when we consider that Jesus as king is wonderful, there is a level of comprehension that we will never be able to understand or attain. I mean, just consider the things that we claim about Jesus, especially in this season. How can we possibly comprehend fully God being born to a virgin? I mean, how can we conceptualize Jesus' life, one that was without sin, error, or failure, a life that was marked by healings and miracles? How do we conceptualize such a thing? How do we conceptualize fully that Jesus died, he was dead, but then he was raised to life. And this one really gets me. How do we conceptualize that Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, ascended to the Father and is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father, that Jesus is reigning as King in heaven right now in some way in the same form that he left? I mean, my brain can't handle such things. It doesn't make sense. I mean, there are things about him that we cannot fully comprehend. And too often, in our desire to assume all knowledge, we box him into categories that could not possibly hold him. Too often, our conception of Jesus is too small. But when we start with the assumption that Jesus as our king is far greater and more transcendent than anything that we could possibly comprehend, it's then that we begin to understand how important it is that he is our counselor. The significance of him being not just wonderful, not just uh, unexplainable, but also that he's close and intimate like a counselor. Let's consider what that means. You know, to some degree, I think we know uh, what a counselor is. When we think about counselors, we often think about one who gives advice or guidance, and in many ways, that is an absolutely valid uh, understanding of counselor. What's interesting, though, is um, uh, the biblical concept of counselor, especially in the Old Testament, is that the counselor often was a trusted advisor to the king, and someone that the king looked to as abundantly wise— Uh, who then was sought out for their wisdom. And sometimes that was even a king who was viewed as being abundantly wise, and other kings would go to that king in order to experience the wisdom. An example of this would be in 1 Kings 4, where King Solomon, a man who's uh, known for his great wisdom, has kings come to him for his wisdom. But then later on in the book, book of Isaiah, the prophet uses these words, wonderful and counselor again, in chapter 28, to describe the Lord. And this is what he says. He "'This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom.'" He's wonderful in counsel, and excellent in wisdom. In other words, the counsel provided by Jesus is counsel that is extraordinary, maybe at times hard to understand, but if trusted, is life-giving wisdom, I mean, consider what we we know about Jesus' wisdom and counsel from other passages of Scripture. Uh, Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I mean, there is no knowledge that he does not possess. John 2 tells us that when he's speaking to others that he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. In other words, He can see into our hearts, into our minds, and speaks to things of which that we are not even aware are in there. I mean, a great example of this is in Matthew 9. Uh, There were those who doubted some of Jesus' teaching. And though he had not uh, spoken uh, to them about their doubts, it says that knowing their thoughts, Jesus responded. He knows us in ways that sometimes we don't even know ourselves. And then on top of that, Hebrews 4 tells us that we do not have a king who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but that we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Not only does he know all things, he also knows our weaknesses and our struggles through experience. So all this together, when he speaks and when he gives counsel, We can trust that there is life-giving wisdom there. You know, my my wife is a counselor. Many of you maybe have been trained as counselors or have experienced counseling. And uh, one of the things that my, my wife and I talk about quite a bit in regards to counseling is that counselors, so much of a counselor's job is learning how to ask really good questions. If you've ever been in counseling, you know The majority of what the counselor does is just trying to ask you good questions. And the reason why that happens is because one, of course, it helps the counselee uh, process their problem and reasons for it, a little self-discovery there. But the other really pragmatic reason why counselors ask questions is because counselors don't know you, especially in the beginning. And they need to discover things about you in order to help lead and guide you into possibly some kind of solution or resolution to your problems. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes that happens. Sometimes counselors are able to get enough information to help lead and guide you, and sometimes it doesn't. But imagine going to a counselor's office with a counselor who does not need to ask you any questions. Imagine going to a counselor who has experienced what you've experienced, A counselor who knows all your thoughts and possesses all knowledge and all wisdom. And on top of that is a counselor who deeply loves you and has proven that love for you. Imagine the kind of healing and restoration that is possible in those kinds of sessions. I mean, this is what it means to say that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Now, having said that, I know, number one, that's really hard to fully comprehend and understand. Not even really sure what to do with all of that. Maybe for some it feels too good to be true. Maybe for others it's just a really overwhelming proposition. The whole idea that someone knows me better than I know myself kind of creeps you out a little bit. But it's only at this point, right, where we're kind of disoriented by all of this that we begin to then see how Jesus now can become your wonderful counselor, So let's take that disorientation with all of this knowledge and wisdom and the beauties and the glories of Jesus and consider some practical ways that we can actually experience Jesus as our wonderful counselor. I want to try to be as practical as I can for the next few minutes because I want us to, to understand that this is not just some lofty idea. Jesus, practically speaking, can be our wonderful counselor if we just consider a few things. And I'll just say this. I'm going to give you three things in particular as we, as we move through this. And they're going to get harder and harder for us to do. But helps, uh, help us understand the depth of what it means to experience Jesus as our wonderful counselor. The first thing is this. If you've ever been to a counselor, you know that the one super important thing you need to get your head around when you're walking into a counseling session is that you need to be honest. Getting g- good counseling almost always requires us as the counselee being brutally honest. If you cannot be honest about what is broken or sick in you, what turmoil you're experiencing in life, then you're only going to get so far in the counseling. The reality is, is that when we're holding back from our counselor, we are actually not, of course, we're not being honest with them, but we're also not being honest with ourselves. So often when we are not honest with our counselor, it's because we're trying to deceive ourselves. But when you have a wonderful counselor, we need to step into that relationship open and honest. And so I just ask you this question. Have you been genuinely honest with Jesus about what you're struggling with? And I know for some that might sound like a strange question, But I also know personally, it's very easy to not be brutally honest with Jesus, laying plain before him, your struggles, your hurts, your pains, your uncertainties, your fears. So the first thing we got to do, just be honest. The second thing I would say is that after we're being honest, we then do need to actually pursue the the counselor's counsel. And what I mean by that is simply being honest about struggles and brokenness, it really only gets you so far. Maybe you've known people like this, maybe you are a person like this, uh, where it's really easy for you to share about the problems that you're experiencing, um, but you never really want to do anything about them. It just feels better to just complain about them all the time. That will only get you so far. It's important, we've got to be honest, but it only gets you so far. What we need to do is actually desire to hear from our counselor. And how do we then hear the words of our wonderful counselor? Well, this might sound kind of preachery and pastory, but our wonderful counselor has actually made plain to us a lot of counsel through his word. 2 Peter 1 tells us that we have been given everything we need. For life and godliness. And where have we been given that? Primarily in his word. Second Timothy 2 tells us that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything we need is in the scriptures. I mean, do you hear this? Our wonderful counselor in large measure, has given us counsel that we need, and he's done it all through his word, through scripture. And I'll tell you why this matters. Experiencing Jesus as king, as our wonderful counselor king, will require knowledge and growth in his word. If we want to experience the depths of how wonderful Jesus is, experience the depths of his counsel, we must know his word. The last thing, we've got to be honest. We have to pursue his counsel. We actually have to go and, and try to hear his voice. But then the last thing, lastly, and most importantly, once we're honest, once we seek out his wisdom, and once we hear his counsel, this, my friends, is the hardest part. We then need to obey the counsel. We will not experience Jesus as our wonderful counselor if when we hear his counsel, We reject the counsel. We will not experience him as our wonderful counselor if we do not trust that his counsel is wise and good. And this is not to say that things will be easy or that life will always go okay and without struggle if we obey, but it will mean that we will align ourselves with his will and his desire and his wisdom, and that, my friends, will always lead to the greatest measures of joy. There's going to be times when Jesus calls us to obey him in ways that we do not want to obey. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we can plumb the depths of our heart and we can discover the ways that Jesus has called us to do something or be something, and we don't want to do it. And yet, here we have the opportunity. Having heard his voice through his commands in Scripture, fully experience his wonderful counsel by obedience to joy. It will. Because the alternative is to disobey him, to reject him, which then eliminates our ability to experience what he desires for us, and that is never going to lead us to joy. And the last thing I'll say is this, is lest we forget, I want you to remember why we're doing this now, why we're talking about such things now. We are celebrating Advent, which is a season that reminds us that our King has come, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to usher in a kingdom not marked by brokenness or injustice or longing, but a kingdom that's marked by restoration and justice and rest. In his birth and in his life and death and resurrection and his ascension, Jesus proves himself to be the That we need a counselor who is coming to us in our need, strengthening us in our weakness, loving us in our despair. And my friends, I know that there are still many days when darkness will seem to be upon us. This is why Advent is for the troubled soul, it's for those who recognize their deep brokenness, their need for counsel. And as a result, go to the wonderful counselor. And much like our brothers and sisters who lived before Christ came, we are also now in this place where we are longing for Jesus to come again. And so I encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus, our wonderful counselor, the one who desires to take you from that troubled soul, experiencing darkness, into joy as we trust him more and more. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, it's so hard so often Uh, to be honest with ourselves and with you. It can be so hard to grow in our knowledge of you through your word. It can be so hard to obey as we hear the words that you command of us. But Lord, would you help us by your spirit to trust that as we do these things, this idea of Jesus being our wonderful counselor will no longer be this kind of unknowable thing, but rather right, it'll be, it'll be a, a transformative experience. I trust that you'll do that, God, as we're faithful, desiring Jesus as our wonderful help us to rest in him. We ask all this in his name. Amen.